Hi, I'm Dr. Pat Basu, the President and CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and the host of Focus on Cancer. I'm very excited about today's show where we are going to cover uh, everything from screening to treatment to you know, the future directions of lung cancer. Uh, very timely given that this is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And my special guest on the show today is a world-renowned expert in lung cancer, Dr. Bruce Gershenhorn. Dr. Gershenhorn is the director of the Lung Cancer Program at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Dr. Gershenhorn, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. Uh, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to give you all my insights into uh, how, we, how we go through lung cancer from diagnosis and screening all the way through treatment options. Well, Dr. Gershenhorn, whenever I have physicians on the show, it's uh, it's easy to see the end result. You're a leading, you're a leader in cancer. You lead the lung program at CTCA, but oftentimes at the beginning, I love to to kind of go back in time a little bit, get a quick understanding of what why you chose to become a physician, and in particular uh, to you know to lead this battle against cancer and, and take care of our our beloved cancer patients. So ever since I was young, I would say even my high school years and in early into my college years, I, um, I really always felt a strong desire to help people and help people not through, you know, mild illnesses, but help people when they really need it, when they're really sick. And, um, you know, I've had experiences where I've um, I had oncologists in my, uh, and, and family friends who um, I shadowed when I was in high school just to get an idea of what it would be like to be a doctor or what it would be like to be a doctor specifically for cancer patients. And uh, I was drawn to it. I was drawn to um, the desire to help people at times when they really need the help. Well, you certainly chose well as somebody who, who loves helping people and, uh, and advancing uh, clinical science to battle cancer. We're so glad and grateful that you did. You know, very few people, uh, you know, in the world is as equipped to, to talk about the important topic that we're here to discuss today. You know, this is one that, that I know is, is near and dear to us. It's an, an important topic to so many uh, of, our, of our audience out there. Uh, because sadly, as you and I both know, and, and, and many of our audience members know, is lung cancer is highly prevalent and 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 one of the most fatal types of cancers um, out there. In fact, it is the second most common non-skin uh, cancer type, and uh, number one in terms of death. In fact, more people die of lung cancer every year than breast, colon, pancreatic, and, and several others combined. So really an important show for our listeners Let's start with something that is critical to um, the the slowing down or the the hopefully someday the the stoppage of of uh, deaths from lung cancer, and that's the topic of screening. Uh, Dr. Gershenhorn, why is screening for lung cancer so important? So a, a, the point of a screening test is to pick up a problem or a potential problem before it becomes a major problem. And in and in lung cancer, we really want to pick up a small lung nodule when it's stuck in the lung and it has not spread. And in order to do that, we've got to do specific testing, specifically a CAT scan on that on the lung, and it will help us find these, these nodules when they're very small before any spreading might occur. And all cancers start at the stage one, which is when they're isolated in the lung, and they'll spread over time if left alone through to a stage four, which is when the cancer spreads to other areas of the body. 
So in order, in order to catch these things early, at an early stage when the survival rates will be much higher and the chances of beating the cancer is much higher, we've got to do screening tests. And for lung cancer, the screening test is a CAT scan. Just like in breast cancer, we're very familiar with mammographies. And in colon cancer, we're very familiar with colonoscopies. In lung cancer, um, the CAT scan is the key. And it's the key to finding these things when they're small, when they're asymptomatic, and before they spread, which will result in a much higher likelihood of getting rid of them and curing them, ideally with surgery or radiation. You mentioned uh, you know, the, the metaphor mammography to breast cancer, colonoscopy to colon cancer. We do have this really terrific test, uh, the low-dose CT to, to screen for lung cancer. T- tell, tell our audience a little bit more about that. How, you know, how does that work? What should they expect um, with, the, with the CT scan of the lungs? So the CT scan is, is like a large donut. And basically, it's, it's a painless procedure. It's very quick. It's very readily available. And you lay down, and um, you kind of go right into the machine. Now, it's an open machine as opposed to a, an MRI where people have trouble sometimes with claustrophobia when it's closed. And um, it's, a, it's a very quick, painless test. Um, it's available at almost all centers throughout the United States. And it's, it's invaluable with looking into the lungs. Now, there was a study in 2011 published in the New England Journal of Medicine that compared doing these CTs or CAT scans to a chest X-ray. And they looked at over 50,000 patients. And they found that the CT scan as opposed to a chest x-ray, is extremely valuable at finding these small nodules in the lung, sometimes as small as a blueberry or a grape. And when you find it early like that with CT scans, it allows us to treat them before they spread. The other thing, the other comment I wanted to make is that in the lung, it's a big, it's like a gigantic sponge. And things can grow fairly large inside that sponge before you even know it. So lung cancers can get from, say, a blueberry to an apple or an orange to maybe even a grapefruit with minimal symptoms, no pain, maybe a mild cough. But it's very easy for a cancer to grow in the lung without you knowing it. And that's the value of doing the CT scan as a screen. You're doing it before the symptom develops while the cancer is at a much, much smaller size, which allows it to be much easier to treat. Absolutely. You know, it's a terrific test. It's, as you mentioned, it's fast. You know, we're talking about the scan being done in, in you know, 30 seconds or less. We're talking about it being non-invasive. Uh, the results are available very, very quickly. Uh, really a remarkable cross-sectional uh, image that can be reformatted into even a 3D view so that the, the patient can see exactly what we're talking about. Uh, another advantage is it, it, it gives us as physicians uh, a really good, precise location of, of where a potential lung cancer might be. We can talk about whether it's uh, involving any of the airways in our lungs, what we might refer to as bronchi or the, the blood vessels in our lungs or, or the edges of the lungs that we can uh, quickly determine, um, you know, some hypotheses around what treatment might look like and what it might entail. So as you mentioned, it's a terrific test. 
a wonderful screening test, but it's actually not for everyone, Dr. Gershenhorn. So, so tell us what are some what are some basic guidelines of the type of uh, folks who should consider getting a, a lung cancer screening? Yeah. So um, lung cancer is, is predominantly a disease that happens in smokers or ex-smokers. Now it can happen in people who never smoked, but uh, the vast majority of people who, who succumb and suffer from lung cancer are smokers. So the, the criteria that was established in that New England Journal study that I referenced earlier was two main factors. One is age. So anyone above age 55 and up to about 80, um, were candidates for the screen. And the second one was a smoking status. So they had to smoke more than 30 pack years. And a pack year is defined by the number of packs per day times the number of years smoked. So for example, if someone smoked a pack a day for 30 years, that's 30 pack years. If they smoked two packs a day for 30 years, that would be 60 pack years. So the criteria were established in that study was you had to have smoked for more than 30 pack years. And you had, if you quit, you had to have quit less than 15 years ago. So again, the two main categories are age and smoking status. And this is different from mammography and colonoscopies where say for example, in mammography, all women are candidates above a certain age. And colonoscopy, all men and women are candidates above a certain age. With CT screens for lung cancer, we're more pinpoint and precise to the to the smoking population. Thank you for that. And and in fact, there's some very recent uh, research. I think just uh, a month or two ago, the the Journal of the American College of Radiology uh, had published some reports around uh, various populations that actually might be at at even increased need to get screened lower than the 30 pack year uh, threshold. Uh, African Americans in particular, and we talk often about health disparities, the idea that various uh, patient populations might have worse health outcomes or greater risk of certain diseases. And and this article did a, an excellent job of pointing out the idea that even though we think of 30 pack years, as, as Dr. Gershenhorn described as the as that uh, sort of threshold upon which everyone should get screened, that in the African-American population in particular, that number may in fact indeed be, be 20 pack years um, to, beginning, to, be, to beginning to get screened. So uh, along those lines, the, the US Preventative Services Task Force, often referred to as the US P PSTF, a little bit of a mouthful, um, is, the, is the federal body that releases a lot of the screening guidelines. So when, people hear about when they should get mammography done or colonoscopy or flu shot. This is the body that does so. So they've expanded their screening guidelines uh, and that's designed to double the number of at-risk smokers to get screened. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about their thinking behind that and, and the impact that this likely will have. Yeah, so very recently, the number uh, for specifically the age was dropped from 50 so from 55 down to 50, and the number of pack years smoked was dropped from 30 pack years to 20 pack years. And I think this is gonna help us. Um, it's gonna help us find more potential candidates for screen because we're expanding the population. And um, it's gonna allow us to find more of these early stage lung cancers, which again, um, give, us the, give us the opportunity to help these patients through a cure. 
Yeah, terrific. And and right now, I mean, I think that's that's outstanding, and I think that's very much going to help. But but right now, there's just too many people, Dr. Gershenhorn, that are not getting screening, even when they do meet the criteria. Um, huge problem, and uh, you know, just a huge opportunity for us to catch these earlier. Do you know? Do you have any thoughts or, or maybe some statistics around the number of patients who should be getting screened in the current guidelines that are not currently? Yeah, yeah, I know this is a major issue because um, when the data came out in 2011 and um, uh, the thought was this was going to be practice changing and community doctors and lots of patients were going to undergo these screens. And actually, in reality, over the last 10 years, it just really hasn't picked up a lot of steam. Um, there's a lot of thought um, as to why, ideas, hypotheses. Um, one hypothesis, which I'm not totally on board with, was that um, the information isn't out there. There's not enough education amongst uh, community physicians and uh, the, the patients at large, um, or that there's just not as much access as there needs to be to the CT scans. I can tell you um, in my practice, uh, we implemented a, um, a caregiver screening program where um, all the patients that I have with lung cancer that come with caregivers, I, um, I, you know, I approached the caregiver about uh, their smoking status and and the role maybe for getting going through a screen for them, and it's surprising that it's um, it's harder to get um, patients, and I'm not sure exactly why. I don't know if there's a sense um, there may be a sense of guilt uh, for a decision made. There may be a sense of fear. Um, there may be a sense of I don't want to go through the screen. I don't want to find out um, what's, what's happening in my lung because of an, um, maybe a bad decision I made in my earlier days, but they don't, it's, it's very interesting that they don't, um, necessarily, uh, have that same vigor and excitement about a lung scan as, uh, maybe someone might about a, a screening mammography. And I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done to understand why after 10 years, um, we're still not seeing a lot of patients undergoing screen. And in, in one of the statistics states that maybe 10% or less of the potential candidates for lung screens are actually getting those scans done. And I can tell you in my practice, I have patients who have undergone lung screens in their local communities. They found a small lung nodule and we've treated it here. And it, it makes me really happy to see that because I know if they didn't have that scan, that spot would have grown bigger and bigger and spread. And then it would have gone to a, a situation where it probably would metastasize and would be much more difficult to treat. You know, I think uh, it's, again, not mutually exclusive. Breast cancer is absolutely something that everybody knows, but I feel like in the month of October and other months, there is just so much out there in terms of, um, you know, the, the pink ribbons and some of those. I, 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 for one, would like to see even more continued awareness about the importance of, of lung cancer and in particular the importance of getting screened. Um, that said, uh, we're gonna talk about treatment in a moment. And I know there's, uh, you know, as, as a lot of exciting things to talk about in, in lung cancer treatment. Let's just talk briefly as a bridge between screening and treatment about diagnosis. Um, can you just lay out for our audience a, a good way to think about the, the, the different types of lung cancer? Obviously, uh, not all lung cancers are the same. There's various, um, you know, categorizations and histology. Can you kind of walk us through a, a framework of the different diagnoses? Yeah, sure. 
So it, it used to be actually a, a, a lot more straightforward. It was either small cell or non-small cell. So you had two categories and they were treated actually fairly similarly. Um, over the last 10 to 15 years, um, we've learned a lot more about both types of cancers and specifically a lot more about the non-small cell lung cancers. And we've subcategorized them by um, mutations or genomic alterations, we call them, and by immune marker status. And these, these specific features in the cancer help guide our treatment recommendations. So it's not um, all non-small treated, all non-small cell lung cancers treated the same, and all small cell lung cancers treated the same. There's a lot more uh, we do with the cancer biopsy now that we never did before. And um, there's a lot more testing that's being done before the treatment recommendations are even started. Yeah, you know, I, I often say that that when we were training Dr. Gershenhorn, you know, there might have been, you know, a handful of cancer types, or there might have been maybe a couple of, of major types of lung cancers. You mentioned small versus non-small cell, or maybe maybe three or four if you actually get to the, you know, the, uh, you know, the actual you know, cell type. But as I often say now, that's expanded to hundreds or maybe even thousands based on the underlying, uh, you know, genomic characterizations uh, that that we have of the tumor. On a previous show, we we did a deeper dive into uh, into you know genomic medicine and 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 precision medicine, and lung cancer is clearly one of those areas where um, it's it's expanded sort of the number of different types of cancers, I guess, if you will, to think about it, but at the same time leads to tremendous opportunities in treatment because now we can be much more targeted in what we're going after. And I know we've made rapid advances in treatment uh, and, and it's having a real impact. Uh, cancer, uh, lung cancer death rates are, are coming down faster than incidence rates. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the um, advances in lung cancer treatment and some of the things that might be on the horizon. So, um, so one thing I'd like to do is, and this is a room where I see my patients every day. They sit here and I sit right here and I use my, my dry erase board to kind of lay this out for patients. Now, what I'll usually do is I'll explain the three different categories of how we treat. And this is typically when lung cancer has spread, when it's not an option to do surgery anymore. And the three categories are, number one is chemo, number two is target drugs, and again, I'm going to explain a little bit about all three subtypes, and number three is immune drugs. Chemo is the category oh, 10 years ago that we were only talking within. We had a certain number of drugs, platinum-based treatments, and maybe a second-line treatment, and that was it. Now, before we even start the treatment, we look into targeted options and we look into immune marker options. So as far as targeted options, there's a test called genomic sequencing or next genome sequencing. This test I liken to understanding the engine, the, the driver of the cancer. So it's a fancy test that takes about a week to two weeks to run. And it tells us all the mutations or engines that formed in that lung cell that turned it into a lung cancer cell. And we're very good at understanding and finding these engines. The key is do we have a target that's already available as a pill to shut down one of those engines? 
Now, in lung cancer, there's, there's at least eight different targets now where we have defined drugs that are pills that are not chemo, not immune treatments, and they dramatically change the landscape of how we treat the cancer, the overall prognosis, and the side effects from the treatment. So the most common one, say, for example, is EGFR. EGFR is a mutation in the cancer or an engine that we have multiple different pills now that can target. And sometimes these drugs work for years before we even, even consider other categories. So we'll always run this test um, or a variation of this test at the beginning to see if we can be in this targeted category when we start treatment. For the immune category, there's a test called PDL1. PDL1 is an immune marker that gives us a likelihood of immune treatments being active against the cancer. And when I say immune treatments, these are usually IV drugs that either are given alone or given with chemo that stimulate your immune system, that motivate, excite your immune system to try to find the cancer cells and kill the cancer cells. Now, this has been a major advance in the frontier on how to treat cancer because what we're doing is we're exploiting your body's natural defense. And we always think of our immune system as, well, we can fight the common cold, we can fight other you know, pneumonias, other infections, because our immune system kills the infection off. The problem with cancer is that since it's not a foreign, you know, a foreign product going into your body, it's actually part of your normal cells. It just gets tweaked in some unusual way. The immune system doesn't see the cancers, so it leaves the cells alone. Recently, drugs have been developed that educate your immune system into seeing what's different about the cancer and how to target it. And the drugs, when they work, dramatically change the landscape of how the cancer behaves in the body and how your body responds and treat and, and, and can sometimes give us long-term control. So these are more um, toxins almost, little toxins that kill cancer cells directly. These are almost like smart bombs to go after cancer cells based on the genomic engines that are active. And again, everyone's genomic engine is different. So we got to look to see what specific targets we could go after. And then this is an immune marker to give us an idea of how well an immune treatment would work. So these tests are done frequently before we even start the treatment, once we know someone has, say, a non small cell lung cancer. And the results of these tests define the way we treat the cancer. Fantastic. Really, really like the way you, you clearly laid that out for, uh, for our listeners. I think all too often in medicine, communicating complex subjects to, uh, to patients, especially after they've just you know, gotten such a, a horrifying diagnosis, can really be a, a breakdown. So you laying out chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and immunotherapy in such a clean fashion, I think, is, is tremendous. And, and then the underlying uh, analogies, which I agree with, you know, whether it's the engine or the, uh, you know, the smart bomb therapy, if you will, for the, the targeted uh, uh, therapies, and then the, the revving up your own immune system to, you know, to, to catch and stop the cancer. I sometimes say it's like, you know, uh, you know, handing out uh, mug shots or, uh, you know, g giving, giving some other, uh, you know, flag to your, you know, your police force to say, hey, this is a, a domestic 
terrorist threat as opposed to a a foreign terrorist threat so that they can recognize it's your own your own body's uh, cancer cells doing so and and the question that we often get asked by patients is is who should go through some of the the testing uh, and when should they they do that can you can you talk about uh, when and and which patients should get genomic testing or, or things to see if they're a candidate for targeted therapy or immunotherapy so yeah so uh, typically, it's in the non-small cell lung cancers as opposed to the small cell lung cancers. And more specifically, amongst the non-small cell lung cancers, it's the adenocarcinomas. It's the name of the cell type of non-small cell lung cancer that um, becomes cancerous. That, the adenocarcinomas, and, and, and even more specifically, the non-smokers who get adenocarcinoma have the highest likelihood of having one of these alterations that we could target. Fantastic, very, very helpful. And I know uh, patients have asked us about that before. Uh, speaking of which, you know, you and I, uh, you know, we get excited about the innovation. We are passionate about the science, but we do this because we, we care deeply about every one of our patients and, and really the battle of our can against cancer and hopefully, eventually, uh, you know, defeating um, this horrible disease. Uh, what you've just covered, I think, is just, you know, a dramatic advance in, in, in the approach, but we're seeing some of these actual impacts in our patients. Do you mind just sharing, a, uh, you know, a story of a patient or two that, that you've encountered where, where they've benefited from some of these therapies? So, yeah, so I have um, multiple patients that come to mind, but uh, very specifically a few. Um, and it dates back to the early days when immune therapies were just becoming you know, in vogue and treatment approaches for lung cancer. And um, uh, one case was a woman who was in her 60s who had uh, an adenocarcinoma of the lung, who's been, she was through a few different types of chemo and it just wasn't working well enough. And a mass was growing out of her neck from the cancer and it was starting to cause her pain and discomfort. And this was back in 2016. And it was right when the first immune drug got approved for uh, the non-small cell lung cancer and we treated her with it. And very quickly, the, the, the mass shrunk. And um, the reason why this was so impactful for me is first of all, it was the early days of using immune treatments. And what this woman did was she over time while you know probably six nine months into immune treatment she started taking pictures of things she was doing that that she'd bring to me each time she'd come for a visit almost as a thanks for life that she's allowed to live that she may have not been able to live if the drugs weren't working and what she did was she'd bring me just a picture of things she did walking her dog riding her bike in the park you know a little vacation you know, maybe a bucket list item like Stonehenge and even things simple, going to the movies. The, this is so powerful to me because this is life. Life is doing the general things, the things that we all take for granted every day because, you know, we're not, we're not faced with a life-threatening illness. But when you're faced with something as serious as an advanced cancer and you think your days are very limited and all of a sudden, a treatment works that you know you, you was really brand new, and you go back to living life, just doing things that again we all take for granted. 
hanging out with our family, walking the dog. It becomes almost a daily frustration walking the dog, but not to someone who's, who is staring death in the face that all of a sudden got a new lease on life. So her pictures really, you know, it's not, it's not some, you know, wedding that she got to experience. It's, it's day to day life that she gets to live because her treatments worked. And in the immune drug, she's, these pictures are from 2016, 2017. And I see her every three months now. She doesn't bring me as much pictures as she used to, but she, she's doing normal life, which I love. That makes me so happy. That, that fulfills me as an oncologist. I love that. I, I'm so glad you, you shared that because all too often, you know, it's human nature to take health for granted. It's human nature to take life for granted until something as horrible as this stops us in our tracks. And I know many of us and our listeners, you know, can relate to that story, but, but I'm glad that you shared that story and showed those pictures because that is what it's all about. You know, it's, you can talk about the drugs and the science and the numbers, but it's all about the patient. It is all about those moments in life. That is why we're here. That is why we do these things. It's, it's not just about adding years to life, but adding life to years. And so I am, I am really, really glad that you shared that. Very, very powerful. Well, you know, you know, another patient, and again, this was a small cell lung cancer patient, which is a very deadly disease, especially when the first or second attempts at chemo don't work. This was a gentleman who had cancer in his brain, cancer in his liver, cancer in his lungs, and the chemo wasn't working. And him also, we started immune treatments. And a similar thing happened to him. Again, this isn't this doesn't happen for everyone, unfortunately. But there are there are patients who really, really, really tremendously benefit. And what happened with him was over time, started getting better and better. And his his wife would always come for every visit, and she would bring me soaps that she made. And it was right at a time where my wife was also getting into soaping. So they became friends, my wife and 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 his wife. And she came to our house. And then eventually he came to our house and he had dinner, you know, with my kids and they share life experiences. You share with people that should, should, and I know as, as a doctor, the situation that they're in and, and what they're facing. And all of a sudden you turn it around. And again, I wish this happened more often, but it does happen in real life. And you know, he's sitting at the dinner table with my wife, my kids, soaping. It's just these are these are things that you know, five years ago, no chance, no chance these people would have survived, and now they do. And immune therapies do something very interesting to cancer that no other treatment does. And it, once you harness the power of the immune system to get control over these diseases, frequently it stays that way. And years can go by and they have excellent control. Some people are off treatment, like the gentleman with small cell. He's off treatment because he had toxicities and he's off all treatment. Now, the woman, the first story I told you, she's still getting, you know, the drug four or five years later. But, um, you know, they, they get long-term survivals and that's huge. It, it really is. I'm, I'm glad you shared just two of those patient stories out of, out of so many because it, it brings it to life. It. It, it gives us uh, the reality and the optimism and the hope and 
and reminds us uh, why we fight this battle, um, you know, every single day, and and why we're so grateful to you know to leaders like you that are that are pushing the envelope and and pioneering you know the fight against in this particular case lung cancer, but but cancer um, as a whole. Along those lines, you know, no matter how much we've done, there's always more left to do. And and you've just described tremendous advances in in screening and diagnosis and treatments. You've shared a couple of these stories, but but we know that there is still a lot left to do. As I said at the top of the show, uh, lung cancer remains, uh, you know, the 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 second most common uh, occurrence and the leading cause of of death. Uh, really dwarfing many of the other uh, large cancer types that that people are aware of. So we have to do more. Uh, share with us what what are some of the concerns? What are some of the big challenges ahead uh, in our battle against lung cancer? I mean, I shared um, two very unique, very hopeful and you know exciting stories. But in reality, like you said, the majority of patients, if we don't catch it early, and it's at a, a stage four or a metastatic cancer. Um, the immune drugs, the target drugs, the chemo drugs don't work well enough. And um, people still succumb to the illness frequently. So we've got to get better at coming up with unique targets. We've got to get better at understanding when the immune drugs don't work, why don't they work? What about the, the person's immune system? In someone, you get a dramatic response. And in someone else, you get no response. Now, the, the marker, the PDL1 marker I discussed earlier, is a way to kind of get an idea, but it's, it's in nowhere near um, definitive. So we need to come up with, and I think the next frontier is, again, more immune options, better immune-targeted drugs um, that harness your body's natural defense for health. Um, but I, I see us moving slowly away. Right now, we're still using a lot of chemo. But I see us moving slowly away from a cytotoxic, which is a classic chemo drug, and more toward unique targeted drugs and more toward immune combinations. Now, this requires a lot of research and clinical trials. And um, a lot of the studies that we're doing here at CTCA are frequently focused on the genomics of cancer. So understanding what engines are active how to shut down those engines. Sometimes we'll treat a lung cancer like we would have treated a breast cancer or a lung cancer like we would have treated a melanoma because they have a similar targeted engine that we know is active in a different cancer that we treat in lung cancer. So there's a lot, a lot we still need to do to better understand how to treat these cancers when they don't respond to our initial treatments. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I think it, it represents both a, a challenge and an opportunity. And, uh, and, and there's so much. There's so much in the, in the prevention arena of lung cancer. Um, as, as, as successful as the United States has been, at least, in decreasing uh, smoking in the prevention side, there are still you know, plenty of, of smokers out there. In fact, uh, especially among women outside the United States, there's many countries where actually, you know, smoking uh, has actually not declined, but has actually either plateaued or been on the rise. Um, so a lot more to do in prevention. We talked about the opportunities in screening. You highlighted 
potentially 90% of, of those who should be getting screened and not getting screened. And that was before the USPT, the USPSTF expanded its, uh, its recommendations. And then, as you mentioned before, I think in, in treatment, uh, there is a, a tremendous opportunity for us to, uh, you know, to really expand on this horizon in the, in the categories that you laid out. Um, so, so I'm optimistic, uh, but share for, for me, you know, what, what do you think kind of the, the next 10 years looks like uh, in terms of the, the battle against lung cancer? Any, any major insights or, or visions that you might have? Yeah, I mean, I think all fronts you just mentioned, we're going to get better and get um, more, more proactive with the screening, less smoking. That's going to help us a lot. We're going to get better with targets and we're going to get more, more, more immune drugs out there and immune combinations. And I think we're going to start moving further away from using the chemotherapy, the cytotoxics. Again, right now we're not there yet, but I see a, a, um, I see a bright future. Lots of research is being done. And I think 10 years from now, um, you're going to see those survival, and we're seeing it already. The survival statistics are improving. We're going to see them continue to improve. I, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you, Dr. Gershenhorn. And I just want to thank you again for, uh, for your leadership in this field. Thank you for taking the time here today. Just a really terrific show that I know will be so valuable to so many people out there. I always like to to give experts such as you a chance to maybe end with a uh, closing bit of advice or a closing thought for um, any of our uh, listeners or, or patients uh, that you might want to you might want to end with. You know, I think just in general, um, when you get a scan, whether it's a mammogram or a CT scan, and you and there's something going on that's not right, and your doctor thinks it might be cancer, I think. Um, first thing you need to do is, is, is arm yourself with a team of, of physicians and providers that really you can tell um, are going to be proactive, aggressive, move forward with treatment quickly, um, and spend the time to explain things so that it makes sense why certain things are being done. You want to be at a center that has access to research, access to new technology, um, because a lot of times, you know, um, when it seems like things are really, really bad from a cancer standpoint, or you know, you're really in a, in a fairly depressed state because of what's happening, there's, there's, um, once you arm yourself and empower yourself with being educated as to what's happening, what your options are, and then you get proactive with moving forward with treating it, I think we can have a much more hopeful future. I love that thought. I think an empowered patient is one of the best things that we can have in in all of healthcare. And and uh, you and I have both seen patients that that sort of transition, and we help them transition that mindset from that initial lightning out of the blue sky into a empowered. Okay, here's the next step, and here's the support structure, and we're with you together moving forward. And and I thank you from the bottom of my heart as a as a just such a compassionate physician uh, who, who takes the time, who pulls out the whiteboard, who saves the pictures uh, of, of his patients. And, and I can tell how much it means to you uh, just as a human being. And as a, as a world-class doctor, uh, again, can't thank you enough for, for leading the lung cancer program. 
uh, at CTCA and, uh, and, and really just on behalf of society, uh, continuing to uh, punch away at, uh, at lung cancer as a, as a disease. And, and we know we're, we're making strides. So thank you for taking time from your busy schedule. Thank you for taking time away from your patients to uh, spend some time on the show. Uh, really appreciate it, Dr. Gershenhorn. Thanks, Pat. And thanks for the opportunity.